Thank you, Alan. And it's great to be with you tonight on the ever-expanding ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. If you're watching on a computer and haven't downloaded our app yet, go to the App Store, Google Play Store or Apple TV and search for ADH TV. You'll find all our content there live and on demand and it's free. Now, almost a hundred years ago, Winston Churchill said, quote, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, unquote. Well, the spivs and hacks who run the New South Wales Liberal Party should take note. Yesterday, Green modern Liberal Matt Keane was elected unopposed as New South Wales Deputy Liberal Party leader. And all I can say is expect a repeat of the May 21 federal election. Remember when Scott Morrison thought it'd be a good idea to commit to net zero emissions after winning the 2019 federal election on an anti-net zero platform? Well, it looks like that's exactly what Premier Dominic Perrottet is doing with a state election in almost six months. Instead of backing coal, mining and manufacturing, Perrottet has let green Matt Keane run rampant thinking that, will, that it will win the people of New South Wales over. He's let Keane commit to halving emissions by 2030, while power prices triple and the Europeans turn their coal-powered plants back on just to keep the lights on. Keane calls himself a, quote, outspoken critic of climate denialism, unquote, and says National Party politicians can resign from the ministry if they don't back his net zero policies. Perrottet has let Keane call the shots internally, making sure the new up-and-comers in the New South Wales Liberal Party are on his side when it comes to his green dreams. And the result will be a landslide victory to Labor next year. These people are stuck in a bubble of woke and green elitism. They've lost touch with average Australians who are sick of politics. They're sick of politicians like Matt Keane being voted in on a conservative agenda and then backflipping once they're elected. They're sick of politicians who don't have the spine to stand up to the green activist mobs who are holding our industries to ransom. And they're sick of the lecturing on climate change. Look at Tony Abbott's victory in 2013. Tony took 17 seats off Labor, giving the coalition a huge majority by running on an anti-carbon tax platform. Then miserable ghost Malcolm Turnbull lost 14 seats to Labor in the 2016 election after trying to please everyone by sitting on the fence and backing climate action. And even after two terms in office, Scott Morrison strolled into the lodge in 2019 by rejecting net zero emissions. Meanwhile, many parts of Australia have had their wettest year on record after being told we'd be in perpetual drought and the rains won't fill our dams because of climate change. Australia's snowfields have had some of their biggest dumps of fresh powder in history after being told that snowfalls would steadily decrease down to nothing. Sea levels aren't rising, extreme weather events are not increasing, and the world hasn't fried, as the catastrophists have been saying it would for the past 50 years. The facts and history don't lie. But Matt Keane and the green sycophants who surround him will continue to. Keane will drag the coalition to defeat at the next election, 
just as Morrison did this year and Bill Shorten did with Labor in 2019. If he really wants to win power, Keane should resign and get a safe seat with Labor, who are odds on to win. They'd endorse him in a flash. Well, as every viewer of evening news bulletins knows, nothing confirms a person's guilt more than footage of stern-faced, heavily armed law enforcement officers emerging from his house carrying boxes of documents. It's a set dramatic piece that the officers and their political enablers know requires little elaboration. They've seized the documents. What else does the public need to know? Indeed, what else does a journalist need to know? Such was the case when the FBI raided the home of a former United States president in Florida yesterday. The New York Times reported, quote, the FBI's search of former President Donald Trump's home in Florida on Monday continued to rock Washington and more broadly American politics amid a swirl of questions about what led the Justice Department to take such a stunning step. Unquote. Hmm. A swirl of questions, you say? I'm guessing that none of those questions asked why the FBI was raiding Trump while the current president's son, Hunter, who should be facing charges of selling his father's political influence to corrupt foreigners and blowing some of the proceeds on crack and hookers, remains at large. Or why wasn't the FBI pursuing the pedophile clients of Jeffrey Epstein's sex ring, many of who have intimate connections to the Democrat Party and other branches of the untouchable elite? Not to mention Hillary Clinton using a private email server while she was Secretary of State, then deleting the contents. To paraphrase new Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who rates integrity as one of his government's primary characteristics, what was Hillary afraid they'd find? I'll get back to Albo in a second. The Washington Post added another layer to Trump's by now irrefutable crimes. Trump's supporters were whipping up another violent insurrection. It reported that within hours of the raid, Trump's supporters, including conspiracy theorists, quote, began issuing explicit or thinly veiled calls for violence, unquote. And while violence should never be promoted as a solution as long as peaceful ones remain available, it must be said that patriotic conservatives in the United States would be excused for answering that call. They've put up with six years of unsubstantiated allegations against their man Trump, and now this? Not that they will uh, perform an insurrection, or if they do, it will not be anywhere near what Black Lives Matter and Antifa did with impunity and even encouragement from the likes of the Washington Post throughout 2020, killing dozens of people and causing billions of dollars of damage. The raid on Trump followed a previous visit by office, officers of the US National Archives, who retrieved correspondence Trump had taken with him from his time in the Oval Office. Now, there is a significant symbolism to this. The president cannot take with him letters he wrote to other people while he was president because those letters belong not to him, but to the state. In other words, the government is not, as Abraham Lincoln said in his Gettysburg Address in 1863, quote, 
of the people, by the people, for the people. Even a department as seemingly innocuous as the National Archive has proved by seizing letters written by a citizen in his role as elected president that the US government is now of the state, by the state, for the state. The United States that Lincoln knew had evolved from a settler society from which emerged a culture of mutual cooperation. This is why Americans still, in some places, elect their school boards, police chiefs, and so on. This is what Americans mean when they call themselves the land of the free. They don't mean they have no government. They mean that they have the government they voluntarily choose. And from that emerged a nation that has been arguably the greatest force for freedom and prosperity in human history. It's no coincidence that the era of American hegemony seems to be ending at the same time that the state is encroaching into every aspect of life, even the ownership of private correspondence. A country that's run by an intimidating and moralistic bureaucracy will soon be run by despots who are convinced of their own virtue and vision for the way other people should live their lives. This brings me back to Australia. It would be naive to think that what happened in Florida yesterday could never happen here in laid-back, laconic Australia. The FBI was yesterday acting not as an impartial law enforcement agency, but as the military wing of the Democratic Party, dramatically and publicly intimidating one of the party's opponents. We've seen similar incidents here, from the power-hungry, petty officials who aggressively enforced the rules and mandates of the pandemic lockdowns, to the Victorian police who shot rubber bullets at citizens policefully protesting against their government's unprecedented oppression. In, Sim in Sydney, the army was sent out to help police enforce the lockdowns. Parliaments have been suspended and emergency powers have been arbitrarily used. The democracy we once lived in is being slowly transformed in the same way it is in the United States. Prime Minister Albanese won the federal election in May with less of the primary vote than the coalition. You'd think that would give him pause to earn the trust of the majority who didn't make his, party's, his party their first choice. But no, these days winning an election is proof that power is destiny and that the mandate is whatever the victor says it will be. Part of that mandate for Albo is an integrity commission which would be fine in theory if Albo hadn't also, in the first two months of assuming office, made it easier for his allies in the superannuation industry to hide improper waste of workers' savings, or hobble the Australian Building and Construction Commission, which had routinely found Albo's mates in the building unions guilty of corruption. In the US, Trump is showing no sign of backing down against the swamp rats. But who will stand up to them when it happens in Australia? Now, on Monday, Australia woke to the terrible news that beloved singer and actress Olivia Newton-John had died after a long battle with breast cancer. Olivia lived an incredible life. Born to an MI5 agent, who took leading Nazi Rudolf Hess into custody during World War II, 
Newton-John rose to worldwide fame after playing the leading role in the 1978 feature film Grease. But she was lucky it was released then because there's no way it would make it, would make it past the self-appointed censors today. The PC brigade would have cancelled it and accused the film producers and actors, including Newton-John, of sexism, racism and all the other isms the career whinges and whiners throw around like confetti these days. Remember the song Summer Nights in which John Travolta's character Danny Zuko is encouraged by his mates to reveal how far he got in a romantic encounter with Newton-John's character Sandy Olsen? One of Danny's mates asks, did she put up a fight, implying that it would be okay if Danny pressured Sandy into sex? And of course, after the BBC screened Grease on Boxing Day in 2020, youngsters took to social media to label it rapey, according to the Daily Mail. As columnist Sarah Vine wrote in the Daily Mail this morning, Greece contains upskirting, harassment, gaslighting, and even an, attempt, an attempted date rape. Quote, when the dance-off contest comes to town, Marty reveals the show's host, Vince Fontaine, tried to put an aspirin in my Coke, unquote. But in the end, Vine, to her credit, says Greece is a timeless classic about love, heartbreak, peer pressure, regret, insecurity, fear of failure and being judged. Quote, these are all emotions today's teenagers feel just as we did, unquote. True, but the scolds of the modern world won't let them. Who needs to feel these insecurities when you can go to university instead, sit in a safe space for three years and then emerge into the world equipped only to be a McDonald's attendant or a Black Lives Matter rioter? Newton-John's passing is yet another milestone of our era, an era when there were no gender or racial quotas, when teenagers could feel anxiety without being prescribed pharmaceuticals or having their genitals surgically removed, and when entertainment was consumed without anyone scrutinising it for the unseen hand of oppressive patriarchy. It's not, just, it's not just nostalgic to say that those days were a lot more fun. The world turned colder, and that's where it ends. But oh, those summer nights, eh? Rest in peace, Olivia. Well, as I said, there is much to discuss with Professor David Flint about constitutional matters this week. Where do we start? There's the voice to parliament, the Federal Integrity Commission, and of course, the most ambitious constitutional proposal of all, the Republic. Many of these constitutional changes will potentially undermine the checks and balances that have kept our federation on a reasonably even keel through enormous challenges, including two world wars, economic depression, and the sacking of a financially paralyzed federal government. We are a nation of people who are equal before the law under a constitution that prevents despots seizing unreasonable power over the citizenry. Or so we thought. The pandemic revealed a disturbing tendency of some elected representatives to impose unprecedented restrictions on their fellow Australians. We saw people being shot with rubber bullets, dozens arrested for peacefully protesting, and millions confined to their homes. Tampering with our federation is not something we should do lightly. 
As we saw in the United States yesterday, Western liberal democracies are now being largely run by unelected bureaucracies and the law is being arbitrarily enforced by politicized police forces. The raid on Donald Trump's home is a reminder that we should be seizing power back from governments, not granting them more of it. One reassuring sign that our Federation is still operating within the traditional rules of civility is that my next guest, David Flint, who is the head of the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, was this week granted a meeting with his supposed nemesis, Assistant Minister for the Republic, Matt Thistlethwaite. Well, we couldn't be a fly on the wall for that meeting, but the next, next best thing is to have him in this studio to tell us about it. Professor Flint, welcome to the show. Welcome, thank you very much. So how did the meeting go, David? Did he offer you a cup of tea in a Platinum Jubilee souvenir teacup? <laughs> no, he did not, though they did offer water, which is very nice of them. He was extremely courteous. He did listen, and that was a great thing. We were making the point that there was a much more important constitutional issue than the ones on the government's agenda, that is the voice and then the republic. And what we said, was that there should be this issue on the agenda, and that is what happened during the pandemic. And during the pandemic, we saw instances which show that there is a path, a pathway to becoming a dictatorship in Australia. We had individual, individual ministers making laws. And this is an extraordinary situation because the minister would make a law without any restriction claiming that this was being made as a regulation under an act of parliament. And some of them were beyond. I have no doubt that some were beyond the power given in the legislation. We had safeguards against that. One was that regulations would be made through the executive council. It wouldn't be the minister who would make them. It would be the governor or Governor-General, so that there'd be the opportunity of an additional person considering it, and the Minister would have to present a case to the Governor-General or the Governor, who would normally approve it. They wouldn't be making a decision on the substance. They'd just be making sure that, firstly, they had the power to adopt the regulation, and secondly, that if any conditions on the exercise of that power were there, and there usually are, that these would be fulfilled. Then there'd be an additional safeguard, and that is that the regulations would then be tabled before both houses of parliament, so there'd be an, op an opportunity for the opposition and the crossbench to deal with that regulation if they thought it were beyond power. And the Senate sometimes did that. The upper houses in the states did that, except in Queensland, where they abolished it against the wishes of the people about 100 years ago. But there's a good case there to re-establish the Legislative Council there. So we had checks and balances, which is the way we've understood how you control governments. You must have checks and balances. They disappeared to a great extent during the pandemic. And you'll be told, we're all told, oh, this was very good because this meant that the situation in Australia was better than other countries. So, David, you're talking to the Assistant Minister for the Republic about the checks and balances in our constitution. Was this something that was at the top of his mind already or not? Well, I think, and he certainly said that they were concerned too, 
about the situation under the pandemic because there were serious instances where we saw the laws not being observed, that they were being exceeded by the authorities. And as I said, the argument that that this did result in a better, a better situation in Australia is not true. Because if you compare Australia with other countries, it, it just not, does, does not stand up. Well, let's compare, let's compare it to the US because we had a dramatic development in the United States yesterday that everyone's heard about. Uh, this excessive force of uh, uh, use of force by unelected branches of the government in Australia, is this, how, how does this relate to what happened to Donald Trump in Florida yesterday? Well, it is extraordinary and without precedent. What would have been done if there were something that you would seriously consider that President Trump had committed, some offence that he may have committed, what you would have done was have appointed a special counsel who would have then been separate from the government, somebody of great standing who would be seen as independent, like a royal commission in Australia. That special counsel would then have gathered evidence and would have put all that evidence together and decided whether it was worth sending it to a grand jury for a prosecution. But it would be completely separate from the government. Doing it through the FBI, which has a terrible record under the Democrat administration of politicising its activities, going right back to the very first thing where they tried to stop Donald Trump from being inaugurated, you might remember, they decided that uh, there was a case of collusion. They decided there was evidence to justify listening into all of the Trump campaign and also trying to stop the Trump campaign from being getting into office. And well, six years later, the FBI is still at it. Would they still be going after Donald Trump if he didn't represent a threat, still represent a threat, to the Democratic Party? Well, what happened uh, in their raid down there on the president's property down there in Florida was something which demonstrates that the Democrats are absolutely afraid of Donald Trump. They are terrified that if he stands again in the next presidential election, he will be elected as president. That's what they're frightened of. And they will do anything to stop him from standing in the next election. That's the whole point of this operation. They're prepared to do things which are illegal. They're prepared to find judges who are willing to sign warrants to go ahead with these matters. They found judges before. At the very beginning, when they created that untrue story, Hillary, Hillary Clinton hired people to write a completely fabricated story about collusion with Russia. They knew it was untrue, but still the FBI went to judges and the judges gave permission for warrants to be issued so that they could listen into the Trump campaign and try and stop his election. You see Trump's army get quite uh, um, motivated and animated whenever things like this happen. You talked earlier about the, uh, the supposedly unconstitutional ways some state premiers behaved during the pandemic. Do you think Australians are too complacent about this? Well, we do tend to be complacent, and I think we believe that we do have a democracy. But it was shown during the pandemic that we don't really have the ordered democracy we thought we had. They say it achieved a lot, but you can compare our figures 
with those of Japan. Japan doesn't have lockouts. They couldn't have lockouts under the Constitution. And in Japan, the rate of deaths per million was significantly lower than Australia. Australia should have been one of the very best countries in the world because we are remote and we're an island. Very easy to protect us in relation to a virus like COVID. We couldn't completely protect ourselves, but we should have been better. About 6,000 more people died in Australia because of maladministration. If we'd done it as the Japanese had done it, we would have saved 6,000 lives and something like that had we followed what the Taiwanese did, who also didn't have lockdowns. We adopted lockdowns from Beijing, from what the communists do in China. We should have just looked after the vulnerable and advised everybody else on the sensible things to do, because most people are sensible and realise that uh, in public, for example, you don't get too close and uh, you don't cough over people. And if you think you have a cold or something like the virus, you stay away from work and from meeting other people. All of those are sensible things which Australians would have done. And all you had to do was look after the most vulnerable. And as a result of the mismanagement by the politicians going beyond their powers, we find that compared with Japan, we've got over 6,000 more deaths per million. So, 6,000 deaths, not so, 6,000 per million, 6,000 deaths in total. So the FBI went after Donald Trump because he uh, is supposedly a, a threat to the hegemony of the Democratic Party. State premiers overstepped the mark in Australia and the victims were mostly ordinary people. Do, do state premiers see ordinary people as a threat to their power? Is that what happened? I think it was just the exercise of power. Power is an aphrodisiac. It's attractive. People like to exercise it. Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you give people power, they will tend to exercise it. They tend to think they know better than the rest of us. And politicians today, particularly the current selection of politicians under the system under which the two parties have captured the system of pre-selections and so on, you find that the politicians tend to look down on the rest of the people. They think they know better. So that you had that extraordinary situation in New South Wales, for example, where suddenly the minister signed a regulatory piece of paper saying that the construction industry must be closed, closed down. And they closed it down for two weeks. It cost one and a quarter billion dollars. And the chief health officer said, well, I didn't advise that. We were never told who the advice came from. And, and it's not clear that this is a piece of uh, regulatory material which could be authorised under the legislation. Let's talk about federal politics. Paul Kelly had an interesting piece in The Australian today saying that Labor has essentially locked itself into a partnership with the Greens and it will probably end in tears. Greens leader Adam, Bra Adam Band has the strategic advantage and will be able to dictate terms to Albanese in many ways. David, we're talking here about two politicians who between them got about 45% of the first preference vote in the last election but they're locked in a dysfunctional informal coalition. 
Does this expose flaws in our federation, do you think? Is, our, is it working or not? I, I don't think it exposes flaws in the federation as such. It does expose flaws in the constitutional system. We don't have enough guarantees. And it, it means that we have to look more closely about how we arrange things in the federation, certainly. And the constitutional system does allow a loophole which allows a path to dictatorship, and we saw that. Now, it's impossible for Labour not to enter into some sort of understanding with the Greens. They need their numbers in the Senate, particularly in relation to certain legislation. Bant is more logical than uh, the Prime Minister because Bant says completely stop all fossil fuels. Don't sell fossil fuels overseas because they're very bad for the environment. We have the ridiculous situation on the part of the Labour Party where they stop us from having coal, for example, coal-fired power stations. They plan to close them all down. But we sell the coal to other countries who are building an enormous number of coal-fired power stations. There's no logic in that, because wherever the CO2 is, it's going to affect the climate if it is the effector of the climate, as they claim it is, on the basis of a theory which has not been proven. Professor Flynn, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's Professor David Flint, one of Australia's leading constitutional commentators. Well, we had a lot of great feedback about our chat with Stephen Senatiampo last week. Stephen is the presenter on 2CC in Canberra every weekday from 5.30am to 9am. And there isn't a topic that he doesn't have a well-considered opinion about. Firstly, let's look at the distressing way Australia is fracturing these days. Warren Mundine, who is one of the most admirable and likeable blokes in Australian politics, said last night that since he expressed his opposition to the Indigenous voice to Parliament, he's copped more racism than at any other time in his life. And he grew up during the supposedly racist 1960s and 70s. Then we have another wonderful Indigenous voice, the new Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price, being threatened by the white, privileged commentator Peter Fitzsimons. This started when Fitzsimons interviewed Price last week, which Price later complained was overtly aggressive. Now, it's difficult to know what really happened in the interview because Fitzsimons has so far declined to release the audio of the conversation. And there's no evidence that what he said was racist. But there is a disturbing amount of rancour in public debate these days. Let's bring Stephen in to talk about it. Stephen, welcome to the show. G'day, Fred. Good to be back. Stephen, for decades, we have had laws that prohibit excessively offensive speech. These laws were meant to make us a more civil society. Do you think they have? No, well, no, they haven't. I mean, particularly if you look at this debate, and we, we touched on it last week when we spoke, this voice to parliament has just created more division. There's something that is supposedly supposed to bring us together, um, and I can't see how it does when it... it its objective is to create two different classes of Australian. But um, I happened to bump into Warren uh, about two weeks ago and we had a chat and he made the comment that, uh, you know, it's, it's ironic that he, coming from an Aboriginal background, is being called a racist by a bunch of white people who have a, an opinion on Aboriginal issues that apparently he shouldn't hold. And it's just extraordinary that, you know, if you come from one side of politics, you're allowed to say whatever you like. If you come from the other side, you seem to be fair game. And 
I think Warren's finding that now that uh, obviously, you know, he spent many, many years in the Labor Party. He's now come across to the other side of politics and uh, seems to be fair game for people calling him things like Uncle Tom and the like. And you know, he, he speaks with common sense. I mean, to, and as does Jacinda Price, as you pointed out, but Warren made the point to me when we were talking about the concept of reconciliation and he said, once upon a time, reconciliation meant you do something wrong to me. I ask you to apologise. You apologise, I forgive you and it's over. He said, this thing is just going to go on forever and there doesn't seem to ever going to be a re resolution. And that's coming from somebody from the Indigenous group side of the argument as opposed to, you know, blokes like us who are well, whiter than white. Well, or as, or as Warren often points out, you know, the solution to a disagreement, the Australian style of doing that is you disagree, you make up and you go and have a beer together. I mean, you don't see that Absolutely. happening much anymore, do you? Anyway, let's, let's try to work no. out who these racist people are. Have you noticed that your callers are ruder these days or are we talking about a different demographic about who, who is behind oh, all absolutely, this? Absolutely, yeah. I know two double C breakfast listeners are incredibly polite. Um, the ones that uh, generally the rudeness comes via email or text message because it's funny how people don't have the courage to actually front up and either, either face to face or on the phone, but they're happy to sit behind a keyboard and say whatever they like. Well, speaking of your listeners, let's um, let, let's dive into some of the uh, issues of the day. What's more important to your listeners, Stephen? Achieving net zero or transitioning to renewables? Um, I, I wouldn't have thought either, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> if, they, if that's the choice, I don't think they're going to pick either. But obviously, look, it's a big issue here in Canberra because we've... Uh, the ACT government likes to pretend that we operate on 100% renewable energy in the ACT. Uh, that's despite the fact we produce 5% of our own energy. The rest of it comes from across the border. 70% of that is produced by coal. So I don't know how you do that maths and come up with 100%. But apparently the ACT government and the Environment Minister told me this, Shane Rattenbury, that you know it's like, and I put the analogy to him, you say you fill up a bathtub, you take a glass of water out of it and you can determine which molecules of water have gone into your glass. And he said, oh, well, I suppose when you put it like that, um, you know, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, we're, we're, we're going to ban petrol cars and we're going to, you know, we're putting in a new wireless tram that's going to have huge batteries in it that cost an absolute fortune. It's just uh, the rubbish we carry on with it this way. And this is supposed to be the nation's capital. It just, it does my head in on a daily basis, Fred. Well, well, speaking of the government in Canberra, you had a particularly uh, provocative or... Uh, a rancorous conversation with uh, the Chief Minister last week. What happened? Yes, um, the Chief Minister handed down his 11th budget. He's also the Treasurer. Uh, in 11 years, never handed down a surplus budget. And when I put that to him, he got very, very upset uh, because the ACT has decided to depart from what every other jurisdiction in Australia does, and they include their uh, public service uh, superannuation receipts in their bottom line which made it look like he delivered two, two, budget, two budget surpluses, which, of course, he didn't. Um, now, the, the opposition down here are calling for an audit to say, well, hang on, where is all this money going? Now, he's decided that, well, calling for an audit means that they want to slash and burn and cut everything. And I put it to him, well, that's not necessarily true. Um, we just want to know where the money's going. And he accused me of spinning out of control and told me that I am craziness. So now, whenever anybody joins me on the show, I say, welcome to the craziness. <laughs> Well, just extraordinary. Well, you know, it's yeah. a, but he's a bloke that has become so arrogant. The, the Labor Party's been in, well, the Labor Greens coalition's been in power here for 20 years now, and he doesn't believe that he should be subjected to any scrutiny whatsoever. No other media outlet 
puts the puts him to the cold the the, uh, the burners at any stage, any time. So uh, I was surprised that he agreed to come on the program, and then when he did get some hard questioning, he didn't like it very much. <laughs> Might be another twenty years before he comes back, Stephen. Now the CEO yeah. of the Commonwealth. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> now let's talk about the CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, Matt Coman. He's in the news for two reasons. It's been announced that he took home seven million dollars in salary last financial year. And he has also announced that, quote, Australia's transition to a net zero emissions economy will require 2.5 trillion to 3 trillion of investment to 2050. This he compares to the investment in the mining boom of the decade to 2015. Now, Stephen, is the fact that we can't see any similarity between destroying industries to reduce emissions and digging up minerals to sell at a profit overseas, the reason why we're not pocketing seven million a year? Yeah, I think that might be the case. I mean, obviously uh, his shareholders think that he's worth $7 million a year or somebody in between him and the shareholders does, but I mean, that's just extraordinary. And I know that, you know, we've got people that talk about us becoming a renewable energy superpower. Um, you know, unless we're gonna build a very, very long extension cord and plug it into Singapore or China or wherever we're gonna send this renewable energy, I just think it's extraordinary to compare um, this religious ideology with selling a tangible product. Uh, it's just extraordinary to me. Yeah, well, it is a religion to me too, Stephen. Now, speaking of, of exorbitant amounts of money, new data from the tax office has revealed the richest suburbs in Canberra. Are there any surprises in mm. there, Stephen? And do public servants um, from the tax office predominate in any of these suburbs? Uh, well, yeah, yes, they definitely do. Uh, no, I don't really think there was any surprises in there as such, because um, the reality is that the Canberra, uh, Canberra demographic has changed drastically. And when you look at the property values here, you can't buy a detachable house, a detached home for less than a million dollars. Um, but the interesting thing to come out of um, some data that's just been released is that once upon a time, we used to think of Canberra as a public service town. On the latest figures, two thirds of people in Canberra don't work in the public service anymore. So there is a, a shift there. Um, and I think the figure was something like 85 to 90% of that two thirds work for small businesses. So you know, I think we might start to see some common sense creep into Canberra in the next few years. What is driving that shift, Stephen? Why, why, the, why the demographic change? I, I, look, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know. And it, 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 I've got to say, it, it did catch me by surprise a little bit, particularly when you look at uh, voting patterns and, and income patterns, et cetera, in Canberra. But it's, I guess it's, um, you know, maybe the previous government had uh, um, trimmed the public service a little bit, so it could shift back under this current government. I really don't know. It's... Um, something that I haven't really had a chance to look that deeply at yet, but it does intrigue me, I've got to say. Okay, let's talk about Victorian politics. We've seen another high-level resignation from the office of Matthew Guy, the Liberal MP who will lead his party into the election in Victoria in November. This time, it's his media director. Stephen, does the coalition hmm. have any chance at the Victorian election, do you think? I Look, I, I don't think so. I, I can't see a jurisdiction where the coalition has any chance at any nearby election, it's just absolutely. Um, but, well, I mean, the part, the, the parties, the, the Liberal Party particularly, has gutted itself. I mean, the Nationals uh, seem to be holding firm a little bit in most cases, but um, the Victorian Liberal Party's uh, modus operandi seems to be let's try and out left the left, and that doesn't work. I mean, we saw that in the federal election when, you know, if you try to be more green than the Greens, you end up turning teal. 
Yeah, well, the same thing seems to be happening in New South Wales. What's your opinion of the new deputy leader, mm. Matt Keane? Well, not, well, look, I, I've known Matt Keane for the better part of 30 years and my opinion of him hasn't changed. It's not particularly high. Um, he's certainly risen way above his own level of mediocrity and so I guess we've got to give him credit for that. But look, the, the problem in New South Wales is that um, the, the factional infighting within the New South Wales Liberal Party has been rife for years, uh, but unfortunately the, the narrative around how that fa those factions operate is false. It's not... a, a proper reflection of what's actually happening. And uh, whereas, whereas you used to have two groups of people that had opposing ideologies, but sort of met in the middle on um, economic issues, you now have this this group in the that kind of sits between them that believes in nothing. And unfortunately, they're the ones controlling the show at the moment. Um, and there seems to be this concerted effort by both of the traditional factions to eliminate this um, abomination, for lack of a better way to put it, and they're destroying themselves in the process. Political parties have traditionally been places where people of like mind get together and actually enjoyed each other's company. But these days they seem to yep. be magnets for people who just want to impose their views on others. Do you think, have you noticed that change well, in politics too? No, I've got to say, I don't necessarily think that's true, particularly of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, because I have a fair bit of experience with that. I think if you look at the rank and file membership, the people that join the Liberal Party because they have that they have those shared values, they still exist. It's the apparatchiks and those that can pull the strings. It's the factional operatives, which are no doubt the minority, seem to drive the agenda, unfortunately. That's the problem. So you, your rank-and-file Liberal Party member is a, a, you know, a centre-right conservative. Unfortunately, the people pulling the strings and the, one, and the ones who are deciding who goes into Parliament and who holds positions of power are not that. They're not reflective of the membership. And, you know, we've seen that over years that it has uh, affected the membership numbers and it's been diminishing for well, probably 15 or 20 years now. So I, I think political parties still are uh, a home for people of like-minded uh, ideologies. It's just the people pulling the strings up. Well, pretty soon the only Liberal government in Australia could be the Tasmanian one. Um, but on the bright mm. side, most of the, uh, the existing or incoming Labor governments are probably going to crash and burn when their green policies start to cost jobs and prosperity in middle Australia. So, Stephen, should we, should we despair for the country or should we just break out the popcorn and enjoy the show? Look, I don't despair because I, I think I have an inherent faith in human nature. Maybe I'm misguided, but I think we are going to go through some tough times and yeah, we should lament that. But I think, um, yeah, there's going to be a bit of um, interesting viewing and, yeah, the popcorn bowl should come out, no doubt about that. Good on you, Stephen. Thanks for your time. Good on you, Fred. Talk to you next week. That's Stephen Senatiempo, whose morning show on 2CC in Canberra gives him a direct line into what mainstream Australians are really thinking. Now, before I go, Alan has been right across the proudest and most dramatic moments from the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham these past two weeks. But tomorrow, another type of sporting event starts, one that is a bit more dramatic in nature to the events in Birmingham. The event is the Outer Known Tahiti Surf Contest at Chopu, one of the heaviest waves in the world. In the heat draw for the event is Jack Robinson, a 24-year-old from Margaret River, who is one of the most promising young Australian surfers to come up through the ranks in years. Jack showed enormous potential even as a 12-year-old. 
I was lucky enough to interview him and his father Trev back then, and the Weekend Australian magazine thought he was so impressive that they put him on the cover. Here's some footage of Jack from a few years ago paddling into some serious chopu. Having grown up in the big and challenging waves around Margaret River, Robinson has a good chance in the equally treacherous wave at Tahiti, even though he's on his backhand, which should be a slight disadvantage. He goes into the event rated second in the world. If he can prevail this year, he will be the first Aussie to win a world title since Mick Fanning in 2013, in a sport that Australia used to dominate. The sport is now dominated by Brazilians who have shown a lot more hunger for success, but have a disadvantage in Tahiti because most of them grew up surfing smaller waves than Robinson did. Aussie champions have a traditionally been charismatic larrikins on a world tour that was at times alarmingly hedonistic, but the tour has changed since those days and Robinson is a reflection of that. He's a modest, likeable bloke who married his Brazilian girlfriend at the age of 22 and exudes an irrepressible love of surfing. Earlier in his career, some, ob some observers thought he didn't have the competitive fire to win a title, but his surfing speaks for itself now. Also in the draw is Kelly Slater, who won the first of his 11 world titles in 1992, which was five years before Robinson was born. The surf forecast for the event is for a slow start, but for things to get serious towards the end of the 11-day waiting period. Expect Robinson to shine when that happens. Whatever his result in Tahiti, Robinson has already qualified for the five-man world title final, which will be held in California from September 8. We here at ADH hope he can bring the trophy back to Australia. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends to download our app from their usual device or TV app store, where all our content is available live and on demand and better, it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Good night.